Hello and welcome to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. Thank you for joining me for this true crime episode. This is another cold case that was lost in mystery for a long time until suddenly it heated up again. There are very few cases that become so cold and then suddenly become solved as quickly as this one. My intrigue into cold cases always fuels my passion and I wonder if at some point I'll be able to help a victim and their families myself. In the case of Helen Brack, the heiress who mysteriously disappeared in 1977 is still one of the most surprising cases in the United States legal history. No witnesses, no body, and no leads for the police to follow up on. The case went cold very quickly after her death, even though clearly someone had been killed her for her money. Then, in a surprise twist, the case warmed up many years later, and the man who was responsible for her death was suddenly caught. Rather than the missing Helen Brack that caused the reinvestigation, it was the many millions sitting in her bank account, unused, that reignited the interest into her case. Helen was born in 1911 to the working-class Voorhees family on a small farm in Ohio. She lived most of her early life in a workaday circumstances without much money. In 1928, she married her high school sweetheart as she thought that he would be her true love, but she found herself divorced by the age of 21. She was working as a hatchet girl when she met her second husband, a millionaire-to-be, Frank Brack. Frank was the son of Emile Brack, an immigrant who had come up with a new method for making caramel and had founded a massively successful candy empire, E.J. Brack and Sons. His son Frank proved an astute businessman and subsequently had made millions for the company since then. When Frank and Helen met, Frank was in the midst of a messy and very public divorce. Helen knew heartache and the problems that could come along with divorce, and she supported Frank through this. Due to her willingness to stand by him, soon after his divorce was finalised, they were married. The couple built a house on Fisher Island, Florida, shortly after their marriage, and then also bought a house in Chicago, Illinois, which was close to the main production factory. The couple had no children. Helen was 40 by the time that she married Frank, and did not have any children from her first brief marriage. When Frank retired, they would split their time between their two homes, but mostly spent their time enjoying each other's company in South Florida. Helen was generous with her newfound wealth, particularly in respect to her family, and bought her mother and brother new houses to live in. 
However, she was not the person who flaunted her money or paraded it in high society like other women who married into wealth. In many ways, she remained down to earth and a person who did not spend on unnecessary items. And this was one of the many reasons that Frank loved her. Money didn't change her. Helen and Frank lived comfortably and uneventfully for 20 years, until Frank suddenly died in 1970 at the age of 79. This left Helen with a fortune of $20 million, which today is about $155 million. Typically, and true to her nature, she continued to live quietly, keeping in touch with her friends and family over the phone, and caring for her pet animals, who she loved dearly. Her two dogs, named Candy and Sugar, became devoted companions after Frank's death, and she went to great lengths to make sure that they were properly looked after. In a rare show of extravagance, when her pets died, she buried them in expensive pink marble graves. Her love of animals also led her to give generously to charities such as the Chicago Zoo. I don't know about you, but just finding out those little snippets about Helen makes me really like her as a person. She was not interested in Frank's money. She did not show it off. She didn't want to go out and spend it. She just wanted to appreciate the small things in life and give back to the people who had worked hard throughout their lives. Her devotions to her dogs and giving her them names such as Candy and Sugar also showed her devotion to Frank's um, sort of upbringings with the candy factory. It showed that she was truly part of the Brack family. Although not interested in the glitzy parties of Chicago's rich elite, Helen did take an interest in horse racing after Frank died and took an interest in earning some horses. She got to know Richard Bailey, who was a prominent owner of a stables and a country club. He was charming, good-looking man, but he did have the penchant for shading dealings. He also had a reputation as a ladies' man, and the worst kind of them. He would wine and dine rich widows in a bid for them to buy his horses at extremely inflated prices. He would also ask these vulnerable women for a temporary loan and then never pay them back. He would stop at nothing to gain their confidence. He would pretend to fall in love with them, have sex with them, and even propose marriage even though he already had a wife at home. He had a speciality of choosing women who were alone, ill, and even dying. There were more than a few elderly ladies who were smitten by his charms, so he was making a good living. But for those who saw through him, despised him. When Richard Bailey met Helen Brack, he must have thought that he'd hit the jackpot. Brack was considerably richer than any of his other conquests and even more decidedly lonely. 
She enjoyed his company and even entrusted him to purchase her first few racing horses. For her first three racehorses he sold her, he charged her far more than they were worth. But with Helen, it appeared that Richard had bitten off far more than he could true. Lonely she may be, but stupid she was not. Even though Helen enjoyed her privacy, her fortune was well known and made her very powerful in the Chicago elite. Once she found out that Richard Bailey was conning her, she threatened to expose his actions and go to the police. Her influence could have exposed his whole way of deceptive dealings, and he couldn't have that. There is not really much known of what was said between them, but after she confronted him, he started to plot to have her murdered. On the 17th of February, 1977, Helen went for a checkup at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This was the last time that a reliable witness could place her alive and well. Then, according to her houseman, Jack, she flew into O'Hare Airport, where he picked her up. However, there is no record for her purchasing a ticket for this flight, or that she was ever on the flight at all. I will play a slight devil's advocate here and say that purchasing flight tickets and flight manifestos in 1977 are not as reliable as they are today. People often used to take you at face value and if you said that your name was Dobby the house elf, then that was your name. Even now, if I wish to fly domestically in Australia, I can book my flight myself. I can even do a self-check-in at the airport without one person checking my ticket and not one person checking my identification. I, of course, have to tick a box during the booking that allows them to check my identification if they wish to at any time. But there is still that potential. And this was something that a red flag was brought up during COVID when people would book things not in their real name. Book tickets and then it was found out that they had frauded the system. It is possible, though, knowing the straight-laced person that Helen was, I doubt she would have done this. For the next few days, while she prepared to go to Florida, nobody heard from Helen, and this was very strange for their lady who liked to keep in contact with her friends and family via the phone. Jack then claimed that he took her to the airport for her to fly to Florida. However, yet again, she did not have any checked-in luggage and no ticket for the flight. She was just going to turn up that day and purchase a ticket on the fly, which for a very organised woman does not seem likely or in character. I can tell you all now that I am a little bit of a stickler for organisation. I have lists and I make sure that everything is planned to a T. And if this was me and I suddenly stopped doing all my organizational things, then my family and friends would be very alert and worried about what was happening to me or whether I was still alive. 
Two weeks later, after nobody heard anything from Helen, Jack reported her missing. But strangely enough, he was not the only person to do so. Her brother Charles also reported her missing, and on the same day. Suspicion immediately fell on Jack and Charles, as they both had the most to gain from Helen's will, and both had reported her missing on the same day. The pair admitted freely that they had destroyed her diary, which would have given the investigators key information about her last days leading up to her disappearance. But both confirmed that Helen had requested that they do this if ever anything had happened to her. This seems questionable, but the police found no other information that could tie the pair to her disappearance. So they had to drop the case and neither was charged. Without a body or any other concrete information about her disappearance, the case began to dry up quickly. Sadly, Nobody seemed to care about what happened to Helen Brack, and her disappearance was soon forgotten. Yet her fortune, of course, was not. And it was looking into her finances that would bring the truth to light. Everett Moore was Helen Brack's accountant, and he was a trustworthy and honest man. He knew the details and habits of his client's day-to-day spending, and he wished to become the executor of her estate. But the Continental Bank of Illinois also felt that it had a stake, and due to this conflict, the court appointed an outside guardian, John Menck. And this is possibly the biggest mistake that could have been made early on as he did not seem to get very far into understanding Helen's wishes or her usual spending. In 1984, seven years after her disappearance, Helen was declared dead. This now meant that her estate could be split into the wishes of her last will and testimony. Her fortune was to be divided between the Helen Brack Foundation, Jack and her brother Charles. However, it was during this process that her previous accountant, Everett Moore, discovered that Jack had embezzled thousands of dollars from her accounts after her disappearance. And in the September of 1993, Jack was instructed to pay back the money to the estate by the courts. However, also during this investigation, it was discovered that Richard Bailey had also defrauded Helen Brack. And now that his name had come up during this investigation, police and law enforcement did not let it go. In 1989, an investigation into the horse racing business in Chicago had begun. And during this process, Richard Bailey's name had already come up a multitude of times. Once it was discovered he was linked to the missing heiress, Helen Brack, this information was sent to Stephen Miller, who at the time was the assistant district attorney. His approach was to follow the money to solve the murder. And down to this, he actually had a lucky break. He found Dr. Ross Hoogie, 
who was a veterinarian who was linked to Richard Bailey through his scams. And through Hoogie, investigators discovered the Jane Gang, who had been running organized crime in the horse business in Chicago since the 1930s. Their leader was Silas Jane, and he was predominantly known as a cruel man throughout the business and who would stop at nothing, including murder, as it was suspected that he had actually murdered his own brother. And one of his associations appeared to be none other than Richard Bailey. It was a big turn in the Brack case that no one could have really foreseen. Quite separately, Bailey's name had come up in other cases. Millam wanted to make sure that the evidence against Bailey stuck, so he and his team worked night and day for the next five years. And finally, in 1994, they brought Bailey to court over the soliciting the murder of Helen Brack. Initially, Bailey did not seem to be phased by the charge that was being lobbied against him. He thought that they did not have any concrete evidence to result in a conviction. However, when the list of elderly women with whom he had defrauded was listed in court, his innocence appeared more and more questionable. Witnesses also took to the stand to testify that he was a violent man and also a con man. Then Miller slowly built a case to show that Bailey had a strong motive for killing Helen Brack, as she unlike many of his other victims, had stood up to him and threatened to expose him, report his crimes, and have him put behind bars for the rest of his life. And that, in the end, is exactly what happened to him. Bailey was convicted and is currently serving his sentence in prison. Not only this, but in the process... A massive insurance fraud in the horse business was uncovered, and a string of crimes dating back to 1955, including homicide and arson, were solved. Thus, it was the case that went cold for almost 20 years, finally resulted in the conviction of a notorious cold-blooded killer and a swindler who mistakenly thought that he could get away with murder. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. I hope you found this case interesting. I have not found too many places who have covered this case, but I found it so fascinating and I felt like I had so many similarities to Helen and I honestly wish I could have known her. If you do have any cases or any subjects that you would like to cover, or any feedback for me in regards to this or any other episode, please give me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com. My main source for this episode was Criminal Cold Cases by Charlotte Greek. If you do happen to get this book at all, I have had it for 10 plus years. It's an absolutely brilliant book to try and get your hands on. And as always, wherever you are in the world, Please stay safe.